Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Edward Acorn, the author of The Summer of Beer and Whiskey, How Brewers, Barkeeps, Rowdies, Immigrants, and a Wild Pennant Fight, pennant fight Made Baseball America's Game. He's written three books, including one on Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural, which we have taped a show on. So he is the second author to have a second appearance on this show. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a newspaper reporter. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Acorn. Thank you. It's so great to be here, Evan. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. On the Ken Burns baseball documentary, one of the people interviewed says, whenever the story of America is finished, it will be remembered for three things, the Constitution, jazz, and baseball. But why will it be remembered for baseball? What has made it last for 175 years? Why was it the first sport that I was taught as a kid? And why is the game the best for telling stories, for passing down knowledge, and the best to help us understand the country itself. Well, Edward Acorn argues the roots of the modern game are found in the season of 1883, when the St. Louis Browns revolutionized the game. They didn't win at all, but their owner realized that he could make money by making baseball about more than baseball. Edward Take me to a game in 1883. What would it look like to what would it look like to walk up to a stadium to buy a ticket and to walk in? Well, it was uh, it was on a, a less sophisticated level than today's baseball, in a, in a sense. I mean, you'd go to a wooden ballpark. Uh, these things sometimes burn down. You'd uh, you'd buy a ticket out front. You'd go inside. It was. Uh, at the American Association, it was 25 cents to get inside, which was somewhat affordable for working people. The National League, which was the older and more established league, charged 50 cents. And that kept out uh, more of the riffraff. But uh, the American Association attracted uh, working people. Um, and uh, you'd go in there, and uh, the, the teams would be playing barehanded. Uh, if you can believe it, baseball at a professional level, very swift, very hard, uh, very competitive, curveballs, fastballs, um, spikes flying, everything done barehanded. And it was a very uh, fast-paced game. People who follow the modern game may not understand this. They'd say it's so boring, it'd be so slow. But in the 1880s, baseball was generally played in an hour and a half. In the afternoon, game started late in the afternoon on weekdays, probably four o'clock. Uh, people left their workplaces and came out to the ballpark, and uh, they had no lights, so they had to play very quickly. There were no breaks between innings uh, because they ha- didn't have to pause for broadcast uh, commercials. Uh, they sort of played in a very fast clip. And if you look at baseball, even now, it's a very exciting game when it's in play. I mean, when it's uh, when things are actually happening, it's just terrific. So that's how baseball was played then. We was, uh, I don't know if you want me to go on, but there was one umpire per game because the owners didn't have enough money to fund more umpires. 
So he'd be, uh, when the ball was hit to the outfield, say there's a runner on second base, the ball's hit to the outfield, the umpire turns to look at the ball and what happens, whether the guy catches it or not. And sometimes these runners would run straight from <laughs> second base to home without touching third. I mean, they'd swing around but uh, to make it look good, but they wouldn't touch third and they'd come straight home. They'd and if they could do that screaming. today, they would, right? If yeah, they could so do it today, the crowd they would, was right? screaming, you know, well, this guy didn't touch third, but the umpire didn't see it. So, so there was that. They, they were very clever, skilled ball players who took advantage of any chance they had. I love the idea. Or not cheat. Yeah. I love the idea of pitchers getting the ball and throwing it right back to the catcher. These guys stand around yep. for way too long these days. The the hitters do, the pitchers do. It really is something. That's the number one thing that needs to be fixed in today's game. Yeah, I um, agree with you. If the uh, if a batter had tried to do that in the eighteen eighties, step out and you know, they didn't have batting gloves, but adjust your batting glove and uh, do all this, you know, the pitcher would have knocked him on his ass. Uh the next time he was at the plate and they would have just thrown it, thrown it anyways, thrown it across the plate for a strike. So they didn't, they didn't dally, diddly dally around. So uh, you write that. Um, and, and it's important to realize, even though 1883 seems like such a long time ago, the game was about 50 years old by that point or 40 years <laughs> old or so by that point. Yes. Um, you write that um, something about baseball captured the national spirit. It's striving impatient rebellious nature superimposed you say over a love of pastoral beauty of justice and order moreover it seemed to epitomize the american interplay between communal effort and something you say was more essential individual achievement the game moved quick but why at that point had it already been able to capture the american spirit it's a beautiful game uh, and it's uh it's just fun it's exciting i mean for a while cricket competed with baseball to become the national sport if you can believe that and it was just decided cricket took too long and baseball was more fast paced and people just really loved it um and it was for those reasons i think that you that you just uh quoted from the book it was that interplay between individual achievement and teamwork i mean the the baseball started as athletic clubs i mean that's why we still call them ball clubs but they were clubs of men who uh wanted to exercise and stay fit in this increasingly office-centered world in the 1840s and uh, so they get gathered in clubs and then they decided, oh boy, it's expensive to maintain these grounds. So they started charging admission and then they just quickly discovered they could charge, have bigger crowds if they had better teams. So then they started hiring ringers to play on their teams. And that's how professional baseball evolved. The book is centered on Chris Vonderai. Am I saying that right? Vonderai? I think so. I mean, I've heard, some, pronunci- <laughs> I've heard some like Vonderai pronunciations, Vonder- but I, I say Vonderai. All right. The so. book is centered on Chris Vonderai, uh, who bought the Browns, the St. Louis Browns in 1882. He was a German immigrant who essentially knew nothing about baseball, at least at first. How did he wind up in America? He was a German grocer who saw people drinking beer in his store. How did he get here? Yeah, many, many, many Germans fled Germany in that period. Um, 
it's interesting. In the 1860s, Germans overtook Irish as the most uh, the largest numbers flowing to America. And they were fleeing government oppression there. They were fleeing overzealous police forces, overzealous government forces, taxes, and especially they were fleeing military uh, service, endless military service over there. So I think Von der did that. This is there's some kind of uh, question about his age, which I think relates to that. He he fled the country and didn't want to give his exact age in case he was conscripted for military service. So he uh, he came to America. He he worked in a grocery. He 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 came to own a grocery, which in those days were sort of synonymous with saloons because they sold liquor as well. So people would come in and drink. And he noticed down the street from his grocery was this uh, strange American game of baseball and, and people were flocking to this, this park. And all sorts of natural born Americans had, uh, native born Americans had tried in baseball and failed in St. Louis. And he, he decided to give it a go. He took his, his life savings and invested in this team at, that had very low attendance. And he did things like charge 25 cents to get to, to games. Sell, he sold beer at the ballpark, which was not the case in the National League. And he uh, played games on Sunday. And uh, which was not true in the National League, which was dominated by cities that had very strict blue laws. Um, you couldn't do things on Sunday. That was a day for rest and prayer and reflection in these eastern cities. And not baseball. Right. And so, but this was a reflection of how immigrants changed American society dramatically. Like the Germans uh, came over. Uh, were used to having Sundays where they, they went out with their families and enjoyed beer and enjoyed activities and all that. And when they came to America, they, they faced this very sort of hyper-intolerant Protestant culture, and they changed it. And before they came, beer was not, it was not, nothing in America. Nobody drank beer. They all drank hard liquor at, at great amounts of hard liquor, as a matter of fact. The Germans introduced beer, they introduced Sunday culture, they introduced customs like having a Christmas tree and exchanging presents on Christmas. And it just changed America. How did he sense, how did Chris Vondra, I, I. <laughs> Whatever you he, wanna say. There you go, yeah, he can't get mad at me anymore. How did he sense that our national pastime needed help? Why was baseball failing back then? Yes, baseball was failing um, for a reason why I th think it's still good to keep Shoeless Joe Jackson out of the Hall of Fame because of gambling corruption. Uh, these games were played uh, under very suspicious circumstances in some cases. Gambling was essential to the rise of baseball, believe it or not. People wanted to go to games and gamble on them. It was like horse racing which was the most popular sport at the time. Uh, so it was very easy to infiltrate these professionals and, and bribe them. And uh, 
they didn't make a ton of money. They didn't make much more than uh, sort of middle, upper middle class people at the time. So it was uh, very easy to bribe them. And until baseball really clamped down on that, uh, this sort of stench of corruption hung around the game. The other thing was there were, you know, these rules against having Sunday baseball and against beer at the ballpark just hurt business. So he, he founded this club and it wasn't in any official league initially. And uh, then he, he got into the American Association and which was a league called the Beer and Whiskey League because it was run by these people like Vondere, uh, brewers, uh, beer salesmen, all that. And, uh, and that became incredibly popular, much more popular than the old National League. How many people would go to a game? Well, in the National League, it was around 2,000 a game. In the American Association, it was 6,000, 7,000, 8,000. On Sundays, it was 15,000. And uh, so they did very well. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but one of the things I find interesting about your work is that it focuses on a certain time period. You've written an incredibly good book about the second inaugural, Lincoln's second inaugural address, which of course was given in 1865. And this book is focused on the summer of 1883. And the other book you've written is on baseball in 1884. Yeah. Uh, perhaps the sequel to this. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, why are you so interested in that time period? What is it about that time period that you find makes it the perfect time to study America? I, I just love that period. It's, it's so colorful. People are such individuals. They weren't kind of brainwashed by modern media. They, they were really rugged, tough individuals, and they really exhibit the spirit of America. I mean, the Civil War, you, you have to study that if you want to know anything about America. I mean, that's, that is America. That's the struggle of America. So I've always been uh, fascinated in that. And I got into early baseball because I grew up outside of the city of Worcester in uh, Massachusetts. And I was staggered to discover they once had a major league team. So I started looking into that. And then when I was a kid, a billion years ago, the uh, first edition of the baseball encyclopedia came out. And you could see all, all these records for the early seasons. And I'd never heard anything about these. And there was this guy, Old Hoss Radborn, who won 60 games or 59 games in a single season. It wasn't an official statistic then, so it keeps changing the, the number. And how could a guy win 60 games in a single season? And I just wanted to know about that, a pitcher. How could a pitcher win that? Now they don't even, let, let alone, I mean, even the best relievers barely pitch 60 games in a season, let alone oh, yeah. a starting pitcher, right? Right. And he threw 678 innings. Now, anybody who knows anything about <laughs> baseball knows that's, that's ridiculous. Right. So uh, how did he do it? And what was the game like? And to get there, you know, I read sort of all these books with these really uh, ridiculous stories handed down that aren't necessarily true. And I just had to go back to the original 
newspaper accounts to figure out what was going on. You have to go back to the original sources all you can. And uh, I spent, when I was a Washington correspondent, uh, way back when in the 1980s, every night after work, I used to go to the Library of Congress and look up these old 1883, 1884 newspapers. And that was formed the basis of my knowledge of the game at that time. Um, that's the only way to get it. You really have to go back. And I confronted all these things I didn't understand, like strange language and plays that didn't exist now. Uh, like in the 1883, which I write about in this book, there was the foul bound, foul bound rule, which was if you caught a ball that was foul on the first bounce, it was an out. And that goes back to the very early days of the game. Um, and this had been eradicated in the National League, but it, it you know, made some pretty exciting play in the 1880s. You could run, 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 and catch a ball that bounces foul, and uh, it's an out. So anyways, you just you have to go back to the original sources. And when you do, you discover these wonderful characters who have been forgotten by time. And uh, I just love to bring them back to life because they're they're worth knowing. They're such interesting people. And, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Chris Vondere's St. Louis and America in the 1880s. What was St. Louis like and where did that city fit into the larger narrative of what was happening in America? Yeah, well, St. Louis, it was a it was a Western city. It was the furthest West city in Major League Baseball. It was a aspiring city. It had a fierce, uh, fierce competition with Chicago, which was in the National League. And uh, for, for dominance is the greatest Western city in Chicago overtook St. Louis around this period. Um, it was uh, filled with all sorts of people, black, white immigrants, um, and especially German immigrants that just flooded into the river cities of the Midwest. And uh, so that was, that was the audience that it was appealing to. In every 19th century city, we, we, we don't really realize it now, but they, these places were dirty, filthy places. They were poor sanitation, horse, horse droppings all over the place. I mean, when, when automobiles come in, we consider them so filthy and polluting, but they were considered as these sort of miracle devices to uh, radically reduce pollution in cities. Was there business in St. Louis? What, what kinds of jobs did people have back then? Oh, uh, well, there was all the river work, uh, since there was still a lot of shipping along the Mississippi River. Uh, there were factory jobs, a lot of factory jobs. There were jobs related to agriculture. Um, so it was, a, it was considered a thriving port city and a center of the region uh, for transportation and other things. Chris Von Der I, I um, yep. he starts making see, changes. Were, he, see, he, oh, go ahead. See, yeah. When I was researching this, I, I found an ad from the 20th century that said, all the way with Vondere. It was a Vondere moving company. So that's, that's basically why I 
concluded I'd, I'd pronounce it Vonderay. Vonderay. So he, um, uh, the, the home ballpark for the Browns is Sportsman's Park, which is near yes. where his grocery store uh, was. And he makes changes to Sportsman's Park. Um, it really revolutionizes the way stadiums and baseball are watched in person. Um, what, was Sportsman's like, what was Sportsman's Park like before and after? Yeah, well, he, they were. It was sort of rotting and falling down. So these 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 wooden parks, they went up very quickly. So he built he built that up, and he put this upper deck on it. That during one game, it was started to sway precipitously. <laughs> Reminds me of Shea Stadium on a really fun full day. We uh, <laughs> Shea Stadium used to bounce up and down on a great night. Well, bounce up and down is different from swaying <laughs> right, 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 right. With a, when you're on a wooden platform. So they, you know, they, there were no OSHA regulations or anything right. back then. So, but anyways, he managed to prop it up and keep it going. But he introduced uh, these things that have never been, that were never seen in ballparks. Like he had a, a beer garden in right field, deep right field. And that's, you know, so if the ball was hit among the tables, you'd have to go fetch it out. Um, and he, uh, he introduced nighttime fireworks at the ballpark that people could come by and go to fireworks. It was the first time this had happened. Uh, and he eventually, he'd put it like a whole sort of, uh, um, um, amusement park at the, at the ballpark. And it, it was sort of these multi-purpose stadiums now that exist are, picking up on what he did 140 years ago. How did ownership work back then? As I was reading the stories of, um, of Chris Vonderai, uh, it reminded me of like a bookie or something, as opposed to a guy sitting around collecting money. I mean, you had to wheel and deal to schedule games and you had to um, find, you basically had to find players and, yes. um, he was sort of this micromanager, even going into the clubhouse to ask what went wrong, even though he really didn't know anything about baseball, right? I love the descriptions you give of when he goes down there and yells at them in his German accent about why someone let a ground ball yes. go through their leg. But it reminded me of this like wheel and dealing bookie, you know, like always we would picture him now with like a cell phone up to his ear, right? Constantly making, uh, <laughs> constantly booking events for his team. Yeah, well, he, he had a manager very good manager, Ted Sullivan, uh, who's a character too, and he's in the book, but uh, he's the one who went out and found the, the great players for Vondere. But it, was, it wasn't a sophisticated system like baseball. Now, now we have this organization with a major league and then minor leagues and a draft system, and, they, and everybody knows who the greatest players in the country are, and they move up through the system. Back then, it was like, Hey, I heard about this great player in this little town somewhere. Let's send him a telegram and have him come and do a tryout. And that's basically how you you filled your roster. I mean, there were there were uh, professional teams, fortunately, at the lower levels, like lower level professional teams, and they could draw from those a little bit just because they could tell somebody was good. But it was a constant effort to. Uh, to, to get players. And some of these players would, you know, uh, would jump from one team to another is until, um, at least until they came up with the reserve clause, which uh, sort of uh, the National League came up with. 
but the American Association initially wasn't bombed by that. They just stole players from other teams and all that. And, uh, and he had to schedule games, right? I mean, you had to oh, yes. basically send to say, hey, you want to play us for a little while? Sure, we'll, well go out they, there. Why not? No, they had set schedules oh, they by did. in 1883. But, uh, God, he, he, he got involved in all sorts of things. Like, he got so mad at an umpire after one game that he insisted the league – trade umpires so they had to send this umpire away and he spent a vast amount of money on a special train to rush another umpire to the ballpark just because he got mad at the other one who was a pretty good umpire so and i write about that in the book but uh you're you're right he he did go into the clubhouse and, and go and yell at the players after a game why did you drop that ball you know like it was a moral failing that uh, somebody made an error and he would also yell at them for drinking too much, which was a real problem in those early teams. They were, uh, you do describe a fantastic party at one point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he would say, stop this slushing. He called it slushing, but it was lushing uh, <laughs> like lushes. You stop this slushing or uh, you will have to eat snowballs all winter. <laughs> as um as romantic and as fun as this book is and it really is a ton of fun to read and uh, you know if, if even if you're not a baseball fan the history in it is so rich and the characters are so colorful that it's just it would be great fun for anybody to read this book but um there is a difficult aspect of the book which is where baseball was racially yes. back then um um it was heartbreaking i mean truly heartbreaking to read the story about um cap anson um and yeah. i want to have you explain cap anson and um it's important to note that baseball was purposely segregated it didn't start this way it was it was purposely done and cap anson is one of the main reasons why so if you can just explain where baseball was racially in the early 1880s and then the impact yeah. of cap anson one of the greatest players of all time yeah, and it's, it's odd. In the 1860s, um, baseball teams were playing uh, white against black teams, and they, the National Association put a stop to that because they said it would foster ill will or something that if two different races uh, played together. It was a very segregated society. This was the period of Jim Crow. And the National League uh, had a unwritten rule against uh, bringing in black players. And one of the things I love about the American Association is that it actually uh, had some black players. In 1884, it brought in Moses Fleetwood Walker, who was the first recognized black player in baseball. He was uh, very much like Jackie Robinson in many ways. He was college educated, he was calm. He was a good player. He was uh, able to take all these taunts and not react to them. Uh, and that's how he survived. But he had an exhibition game in 1883 against, he was playing for this team in Toledo, which was not uh, uh, major league team yet and he played against cap anson and anson took one look at him anson was the greatest hitter of the 19th century and probably the greatest figure in baseball 
in the 19th century. Great hitter, great manager. He took one look at Moses Fleetwood Walker at this exhibition game and said, get that N-word off the field. And uh, they sat down uh, uh, Walker that day and didn't play him. Um, and Anson had his way. And eventually he brought down the color line in baseball. He, um, he, he thought, I mean, there were attitudes back then that it was beneath the dignity of white men to be on the field with black men. And uh, the players obviously didn't want the competition for these high-paying, reasonably high-paying jobs in baseball, so they kept them out. And Vondere had a different attitude. He wanted to play exhibition games against black players. There were, was a very good black professional team in St. Louis called the Black Stockings. And they would play games against the uh, white teams in St. Louis. And uh, people would come out to the park, including members of the Browns. And, and uh, they were quite impressed with the quality of play. So, um, yeah, Walker only lasted a short while. He even had, he, he had to confront prejudice. He was a catcher. He had to confront prejudice against his own pitcher, Tony Mullane, who was crossing him up. Uh, throwing like signaling for a fastball and he would throw, I mean, signaling for a curve, he'd throw a fastball, which was very dangerous to catchers at that time. And eventually uh, the catcher had to say, well, let's do no signs at all. We'll just, uh, just throw it. It's less dangerous than you crossing me up. And so this is the level of hostility he faced. I mean, this is the height of Jim Crow America in the 1880s. That's when those laws were enacted. Um, he just went through a lot. He played in Richmond, uh, which, which was very dicey for him. Um, and that's a very sad thing in baseball, that the color line was not broken then. It's not broken until uh, 1949. That's it would take thing. over 60 years. Um, yeah. Given how hard Cap Anson worked to make sure that he always played on a segregated field, um, should, I, I'm, this is a bit of an aside, but should he be removed from the Hall of Fame? I, I don't believe so. I don't think you should judge uh, historical figures by the standards of today. I think uh, you have to view them in the context of the world in which they existed. I mean, you can judge them morally, but I don't think... Um, I don't think, I think when you look at history, um, it's always a valuable thing to do to look at the culture of the time and judge them by the culture of their time. And I do believe, um, I do believe the Hall of Fame um, does have an exhibit. I mean, he's still, of course, in the Hall of Fame, but there is an exhibit, um, I think, elsewhere you know, you have the plaques in one area and then there's a whole incredible museum, which is maybe the most special museum in America. But um, they do have an exhibit on the impact of Cap Anson um, throughout the Hall of Fame. Right. Um, um, uh, so how does the season go baseball wise for the Browns? The, part of the title of the book <laughs> is is um, a wild pennant fight made baseball America's uh, America's game. So what is this wild pennant fight? Well, they were, they were basically four teams uh, 
right in the race uh, for a lot uh, throughout the season, and it was reminded me of the season. I'm so old, but 1967. <laughs> I grew up as a little kid watching the Red Sox, and I, I'll never forget that year with all these teams fighting in the pennant for the whole year. And that was the case in in 1883, uh, in both leagues, as a matter of fact, but in the American Association. And and Vondere, it was this highly emotional guy. I mean, he was he, he uh, loved this manager he had hired. Ted Sullivan. He gave him a gold watch early in the season. And then he started torturing him, uh, getting involved in his micromanaging, as you said, his decisions to the point at the uh, near the end of the season, Sullivan threw his watch at him and stormed off the team. He just the, abandoned the team in the middle of the pennant fight. So, so I write about that. Oops. But I don't want to give away the whole book, but uh, it's a very wild pennant fight. The the uh, Philadelphia Athletics um, were so badly injured. I, I write about the inju- injuries of players in those times, which were horrific. Um, and they became so hobbled that they they had desperately needed a pitcher. So they went to the Yale team and just brought in this crazy pitcher of theirs who was named Jumping Jack Jones because he would pitch like a jumping jack with his arms and legs thrown out. And uh, so they brought him into the, into the game and that astounded everybody. He probably had the funniest pitching motion in the history of baseball. So I write about that. Um, we have this uh, player for the Cincinnati Reds, this really good player named Long John Riley, who was a illustrator in the off season. So he drew cartoons during the season of some of these things. He drew a very funny cartoon of uh, Jumping Jack Jones. So we have this stuff and uh, it's in the book and it's preserved and it's, it's just wonderful stuff. One thing that is, um, that is, uh, a reality in today's baseball was also a reality back then, which is uh, when you win, when you win at all, you get a great parade. Um, And there's a beautiful, (laughs) maybe my favorite picture in the book and the book has, I don't know, a couple dozen pictures in it. Um, My favorite picture of the book is of the victory parade. And I I guess I shouldn't say where, could I, I don't want to give away who won. Well, you can give it away. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'll give it away and say the, the, the Philadelphia athletics and eventually win the pennant. Um, and there's an incredible picture of this parade that happens to celebrate their heroes coming back. It really felt like today where um, a team, a city welcomes a team back after doing something incredible. What is it about these parades? When did they start and why do we love them so much? Oh, the, 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 the 19th century was parade crazy. And uh, so they, this was the biggest parade, though, in Philadelphia since the end of the Civil War. I mean, this is how people were whipped up by baseball then. It was incredible. And they had just a massive parade with all sorts of groups, all organized very carefully. And they were marching around carrying uh, jumping jacks uh, in honor of this uh, Yale pitcher who had, he was not that good. He only pitched a few games, but they were really crucial games. And so I just love that. They're carrying jumping jacks on posts. And uh, 
just having the greatest time uh, cheering this team. And uh, St. Louis had a parade as well, but it was not as uh, festive as you can imagine. Uh, how did he save baseball? How did Chris Fonderay, in the end, save this game and revolutionize it to the point where you argue there is a dividing line before 1883 and after 1883? Well, he... he he expanded it to people, working people, and it made it brought in great crowds and a lot of excitement. You know, back then people worked, you know, we don't have any idea of how tough our ancestors had it. We take everything for granted. But these people worked six days a week and 10 hours a day. I mean, they were, and these were in difficult physical jobs and they wanted a day off to enjoy themselves. So Vondere allowed them to come to the ballpark, have a beer, hang out with their family on Sunday, and he charged 25 cents, which they could afford. And the uptight National League was very different. It didn't want the riffraff, and it was quite specific about this. It was a very sort of classist, classist league where it wanted, uh, you know, it was worried about baseball's rowdy reputation. It wanted to, everybody to be prim and proper at the ballpark. It was very strict against uh, liquor being sold at the ballpark. Vondre had this different attitude. He even introduced uh, hot dogs at ball games, and <laughs> as well as beer and pretzels. And uh, he just thought baseball should be fun, should be wild should be open to everybody and it should be a show and that's what he did and he brought in huge crowds all of a sudden baseball which had been in danger of just uh sort of dying off it had had very small crowds people didn't like it anymore he, he changed the whole tone of the game and made it uh, just fun and wildly popular I started the episode asking you to take me to a game in 1883. Um, today, when you go to a game, you don't even get a ticket anymore. It's sitting on your phone and you sh flash your phone <laughs> to the guy. Um, there are um, the prices for the stuff that you buy in there, which is stuff that Chris Vondere, um was, um, I guess, instrumental in, in putting into, to, into the game. But the prices are unbelievably high. Yeah. Um, it's more buttoned up certainly i mean maybe there are some there is some rowdiness but it's much more buttoned up than what you're describing in the 1880s um uh the scoreboards are electronic there are lights um the games can be played all hours of the day um i want to ask though where do we still see chris vondere in today's game certainly hot dogs would be one right <laughs> well yeah hot dogs uh yeah the sense of fun around games. It was it, the spirit of those games he was involved with were more like the minor league games today, which are, where they just there to have, people are there to be, have fun, to enjoy themselves. And of course, but of course they were passionate fans in the 1880s and really got into this team and it's, and it struggled to win the pennant. So I think that's, uh, that's very similar with baseball now, I think baseball actually has uh, wandered away from some of the good things about it that Vondere was behind. And I, I would like to see it return 
more to the spirit of the 1880s with a faster-paced game with less uh, time given out for advertising and with players actually stepping up to the plate and batting. Of course, not all of it is like the 1880s. They could, they could only afford one umpire, as I mentioned, and they, could only aff- they would try to keep the game to one baseball per game, believe it or not. So if the ball was hit into the stands, the guard, you know, the ushers would say, throw it back. They'd have to throw it back. to. Now it's to like the, five baseballs per uh, batter. Um, right. I, I was talking to um, Ben Mondor, who owned the Pawtucket Red Sox team and the AAA around my parts, and he said they use on average 104 baseballs per game. And back then it was one. So it be, by the end of the game, it became all ragged and mushy and hard to hit and it was uh and, you know stained with tobacco and all that oh. stuff and uh it very much uh benefited the pitchers so you'd have to get your hitting in early in the game <laughs> yeah right um you know it's impossible to hit a soggy baseball what was the fate of chris vondere's franchise and his team well chris chris actually uh created some uh really wonderful teams that won the World Series, the earliest World Series in the 1880s. Um, uh, So that was, he was quite a success in doing this. Um, Despite his lack of knowledge, he had sort of instincts for picking up on really good players. And that was, that was wonderful. But he was a, a complete womanizer. And that sort of ruined him financially. He was uh, he drank a little too much. He was a womanizer, and eventually he, he overextended himself, and and eventually went bankrupt. Had to sell the team off, but the team uh, was absorbed into the National League, and it was now now is the St. Louis Cardinals. So we we owe the Cardinals to this guy. Why was he forgotten? Uh Everybody from the 18, well, he wasn't completely forgotten. There were books in the 1940s and 50s about this funny guy from the 1880s, but virtually everyone in the 19th century has been forgotten. Um, only, I mean, base, diehard baseball fans know them, but it's, I think one of the reasons they're forgotten is it's so damn hard to dig out the story of what they did. You have as I mentioned earlier, you have to go back to the original sources. You have to have some knowledge of the game at that time. And there's not a lot of, fortunately, there's, there's amateur people willing to do that, but there's not a lot of uh, book writers willing to do that. So um, they kind of get lost. So that's why I love, I've just loved to have the opportunity to do this. Not only Vondere, but in my other book, 59 and 84, I write about old Haas Radborn, who won all those games that year. And he was a, I mean, he was a, a, a relative said he drank a quart of whiskey a day when he was at the height of his career. And he was the first man photographed giving the middle finger. And he was a very ornery fellow. So uh, I just loved bringing him back to life. And these people are, are, you know, they're very human. They're very funny. Um, they say funny things. They do wild and outlandish things. And it's just wonderful to bring them back to life. 
the game feels to me like it's in an, it's in an uneasy place right now. Um, the stars aren't marketed properly. I mean, how many people could honestly recognize Mike Trout walking down the street? I mean, maybe nobody. Um, right. The game certainly take too long. We've talked about that a couple of times. There are weird rules regarding replay and extra innings and double headers. Um, where is the game going? How would a commissioner acorn revolutionize the game <laughs> to put it on better footing? Yeah, I would, I would make, if I was the dictator, I would uh, get rid of some of the advertising, which is, would get rid of their money, which they don't want to do. Uh, but it would be benefit the game. I would. Uh, I think between pitchers, they should, they should eliminate that commercial break and say, once you warm up in the bullpen, you get one or two yep. pitches out there on the mound and that's yep. it. Don't go to sponsor the, you know, you can sponsor the pitching change, but sure. don't give me another two and a half minute commercial to let the guy right. warm up for another, you know, 15 pitches. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's too long between innings. Even when I was a kid, it was uh, a minute between innings and that was, uh, that was serviceable, you know? Uh, so I would do that. I would, uh, restrain batters from stepping out of the box i would that would just make you know i would i would change the rules to make it possible to make the game go faster and that's it's a great game i would get rid of the stupid replay stuff i think it's ridiculous i think part of the game is the umpire makes a ruling and you can hate the umpire and you can get pissed off at him and that's part of the game this is this is not it's not science. It's, it's an art. It's, it's, it's a game. It's fun. It's, you know, you want to have umpires make the best decisions possible, but it's a human enterprise. You can't. And I just think the replays in there as a gimmick, as a way to, and, and as a way to get in more ads and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I'd get rid of that. I, I like I like an umpire making a decision. I like the manager coming out and yelling at him. I think that's part of the color of the game, and that goes if, way back. If you um, if you become commissioner, promise you'll make me deputy commissioner because I agree <laughs> with I agree with everything uh, you're saying. Oh, um, thank you. Will baseball always be America's game? Uh, I hope so. I think they're doing their best to kill it. Um, <laughs> Not if they have anything to say about I th- it. I think they need to bring Chris Vondere back and uh, have some of his spirit injected into the game to, to make it fun, lively, um, fan-centered instead of player-centered. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just I, I desperately hope because baseball – at the bottom of it is so fascinating because it offers this window into American culture, like almost nothing else. Any period you look at it, it tells you so much about America. I mean, in the 1880s, it tells you this was a very tough, competitive society where people got injured and hurt and killed. And, and it was not a place for wimps. And it, in later America, it shows uh, the changing attitudes about race, the rise of black Americans into the middle class and into every uh, aspect of our country. And that's, you know, these are great stories. 
and I and it shows the the spirit of inventiveness in America. Um, so I, I just I hope the game survives because it it says so much about us. I mean, it says in the the great immigrate immigration period of America, people came to America and the first thing they did was learn baseball, especially the kids. That's the way they could be acclimated and become Americans. And that's something we all shared together. Am I allowed to ask what might be next for you in terms of books? Um, 1885 baseball season? I'm, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'm still uh, working the Lincoln vein. Um, I absolutely adore Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and I, I adore him for his flaws as well as his, his greatness. And that's, and I try to bring out what his period was like very much the way I do in the baseball books with funny stories, with human uh, elements, with the drama. And I try to put the reader there, like you are there, you feel what it feels like, you smell what it smells like. And that's, that's what I want to bring to Lincoln. So he's not uh, viewed from 30,000 feet up and uh, viewed as this sort of this godlike figure. He's a human being and he's facing uh, very great challenges and he's got certain personality defects that also affect him. So there is a book, there is something coming? Well, I'm working hard. All right, one. all right. I don't want to nudge you. Nope. I don't want to nag you. Nope. Um, Hopefully you'll hopefully you'll come back and talk about that book whenever whenever if it should be finished. We would love to have you. Oh, I would love to, Evan. Edward Acorn, the author of The Summer of Beer and Whiskey: How Brewers, Barkeeps, Rowdies, Immigrants, and a Wild Pennant Fight Made America Sorry, Made Baseball America's Game. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Check out the book, his website edacorn.com. He's also on Twitter at ed underscore acorn. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.